here, week three in this series on uh, the beautiful outlaw, and we've been really kind of dealing with these, uh, uh, dismantling these preconceptions of what Jesus was like. What's interesting to me is that when someone wants to present to us a new conception of what Jesus was like, they inevitably want to dismiss the earliest, most reliable accounts that we have of his life and say, and here's the real Jesus, and so we see that at all different uh, places in our culture. Uh, have you noticed that um, the real Jesus is uh, always presented to us uh, as if we're supposed to accept this apart from anything you, we used to know? For example, the Dan Brown Jesus. If you see the movies or you read the books by Dan Brown, you know that the Dan Brown Jesus married Mary Magdalene and they uh, had children moved to Europe and sprung a line of Merovingian kings. So that's a fantastic story. That's the real Jesus. Then there's, oh, here's the real Jesus. The Muslim, only a prophet, never crucified Jesus, which is fascinating because not only does that completely disagree with the four Gospels, but it also disagrees with everything we know outside the Bible about Jesus. If the, there's one thing you can know for sure about Jesus of Nazareth, it's that he was crucified. Then there's the Hindu avatar of Vishnu, Jesus. And then there's the Mormon, spirit brother of Satan, Jesus. Lots of real Jesus out there that discount these earliest records that we have. So in that crowded field, let me add one more. And this again is presented to us as the real Jesus, the one that I think is probably more popular, more believed in than these, all these other versions combined. And that's the Mr. Rogers Jesus. <laughs> so I have an, you know, we have this image of Jesus, which has basically been effectively emasculated and tamed for adolescent consumption. The Mr. Rogers Jesus is the one that we see in the pictures, right? In the crucifixes, who's always got that serene, dopey look on his face. And why is it that he's always Swedish? Can someone explain this to me? Okay, that he's got blonde hair. There it is, blonde hair and just pale white skin. Was this man not a Semite? I, so where do we get this? It's like, it's this amazing look of him that um, uh, this Jesus too too pure to have emotion, apparently too, too clean to have dark skin. He's, uh, he's too clean to touch, too otherworldly to have dirty fingernails or smelly clothes. And whatever else Mr. Rogers Jesus is, he is absolutely nice. He's just so nice. Novelist Dorothy Sayers, some of you read her novel, she was a committed Christian, she said, we have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting house pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Now that Jesus, this Mr. Rogers Jesus, he doesn't ruffle feathers, that's the one thing he doesn't do, he doesn't rock boats, he doesn't rattle cages. Mr. Rogers Jesus has only pleasant things to say to everyone in his neighborhood. And in fact, Mr. Rogers demands nothing, he asks for nothing, he only sues, he only affirms all of our deepest held ideas and preconceptions. But here's the thing. The Mr. Rogers Jesus is as missing from the Gospels as is the Mormon Jesus or as in the Dan Brown Jesus or the Muslim Jesus. You just don't find him there. If you open up these earliest and most reliable accounts, instead, when you open up those four Gospels, what we find is the real Jesus, you know, the one who actually existed, was an exasperating figure. The figure at the center of the New Testament, AC3, was a scandal maker. He was a rugged truth teller. He was a disturber of the peace. He was, in short, a beautiful outlaw. That's, that's the guy that you meet there in the earliest recollections of his life. So to shake us out of our biases, our preconceptions of the Mr. Rogers Jesus, let us go to those earliest recollections of his, 
uh, apostles and close associates. First, let's begin with his family tree. In Matthew chapter 1, we read a genealogy of Jesus that, that kind of shows a scandalous lineage. Now, before we get into this, confession time. I'm looking at a crowd of churchgoers, so I'm guessing we have some Bible readers in the group this morning. How many of you Bible readers have come across one of the many genealogies in the Bible and said to yourself, this is just a long list of names I can't pronounce, I'm skipping it. Okay, good. Well, it's church, it's good to confess your sins. So... So here's the thing, if you had skipped Jesus' genealogy, you would have missed something really important because the author is kind of doing something, several things, but one of the things is to tell you that the man who comes from this lineage is going to scandalize you. That was presaged in listing his lineage. Now as you might expect, his lineage is traced through the fathers, but curiously, four women are listed in Jesus' ancestry. You know, there's dozens of women in his ancestry. Obviously, it takes, you know, you know how procreation works. So there's, there's plenty of women, but only four are listed. Do you want to know who they are? Let's look. Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Then skipping down, no other women listed for a couple of verses. Then Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. And then skipping ahead again, Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, then David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Now, if you've read the Bible, and I heartily recommend it, you know why that's interesting. If you've read these stories, you know why that's incredibly interesting. These are all women with shady reputations. Tamar and Rahab worked as prostitutes. Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, an adulterer. Of course, David was as well, King David was. And Ruth was a Gentile outsider, an outsider to the promises of Moses. Now, what is that saying to you? These are the women in the human line of Messiah, the Holy One, the chosen one of God. Isn't it saying to you that God can redeem any person and use them inside his master plan, no matter who they are or what they've done? Isn't that one of the messages that's being embedded there by Matthew? And isn't it also the effect to say, the son of such stock is surely going to be okay with scandalizing people because there are scandals in his lineage. I think that's the effect. Also, the effect is to say the man born from this line surely is not going to care about public opinion, but only about God's capacity to redeem anyone and anything. I think that's the upshot of just listing his lineage in this way. So 30 years later, after uh, Jesus is born, close to the beginning of his ministry, after Jesus started to attract a following, he's a young 30-year-old rabbi, he's beginning to call disciples, he takes a visit back to his hometown. The hometown's name is Nazareth, and he goes to the synagogue there on the Sabbath, as was his habit, and he was invited to preach. So when he's invited, he goes to the lectern, and he opens up the scroll of Moses, and he begins to read Luke chapter 4, verse 18. This is a quote now from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he continues to quote Isaiah for several more verses and then finishes by saying, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now the people, the Nazarites, who are listening to him at this point are deeply skeptical. I mean, they're saying, isn't this Joseph's boy? How can a carpenter's son fulfill scripture? Like, by what right? 
And so with other sorts of thoughts and feelings and words, their hard-heartedness was on display. They're wondering why Jesus wouldn't do like a miracle to prove his right to say such audacious things, that he's the fulfillment of messianic scripture. And this is where Jesus uttered that now famous phrase. You know, many of the things that Jesus said have worked their way into Western culture and language. And one of the things he said that we, we throw around is the phrase, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. That's what he says. He says that in response to the skepticism of his fellow Nazarites. And then in response, he elaborates. And he goes back to Old Testament stories that they would have all been familiar with. Two particular stories in the text. We don't have time to get into it, but I'll summarize. He mentions two examples of God's power and salvation coming to a couple of Old Testament saints. And what do they have in common? They're both Gentiles. He lists two examples in the Old Testament where God loves and saves and redeems outsiders, non-Jews. And what Jesus is basically saying is God's power and salvation come to people who have faith and who are hungry for his grace irregardless of their pedigree. And you, my fellow Nazarites, aren't hungry for God and so it doesn't matter that you're Abraham's children, you're missing out on the day of God visiting you. Now, the stunning bravery of that. I mean, just that is not a wimpy thing to do, but just to like up the, up the ante here, to up the level of difficulty, let's remember something that we've only found out just recently. We found out that Nazareth is a very, very, was a very, very small place. Well, today it's a big place. There's 100,000 people living in Nazareth. But back then, a tiny place. Now, from the archaeological evidence, it looks like Nazareth was an out-of-the-way hamlet of around 50 homes on a patch of about four acres. And we figured this out from graves that we've uncovered and some other things. And by the way, that explains why Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament and why Josephus doesn't mention it in his list of towns. In fact, because there was no mention, skeptics used to think that Nazareth didn't exist, like it was just made up a fairyland. So the apostles said, we need a place for our made-up Messiah to come from, like Narnia. Then they would just throw Nazareth, pulled Nazareth out of the hat. No, Nazareth was a real place, but it was a tiny place, and that explains why it never made it onto the list it was a tiny out of the way place that's why one of the disciples response is can anything good come from Nazareth it was such an insignificant place now what does that mean that means it was a tiny place less than 50 homes maybe a couple hundred people lived there so when Jesus rebukes the Nazarites in the synagogue that was not a nameless crowd of hundreds and hundreds of people that was the people who knew him by name and whom he knew by name, like personally. So just to add to the level of audacity and the level of bravery, just imagine having the courage to say to people who saw you grow up, right? Just watched you grow up and say, hey, Bob, Lane, Jerry, how you doing? Yeah, how's the wife? Good, good, yeah. Yeah, you guys are missing out on the salvation of God. Yeah, rolled up the scroll, drop mic. That's an incredible, an incredible piece of bravery to say that to the people who knew you, had seen you grow up. You knew them. Just unbelievable bravery. This is not a wimpy thing to do. And no wonder then the next thing that we read in the story, Luke says, chapter four, verse 29, they got up, drove him out of town and brought him to the edge of the hill their town was built on. We now know that Nazareth was built on a hill, intended to hurl him off the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, no one knows how that happened. I mean, scholars have been debating about how he passes through the crowd if he's like gonna get strung up for stoning. 
uh, was it like sort of a Jedi, you know, you know, and just walk through the crowd? Or, or more likely, people suspect a 30-year-old male who'd been involved in blue-collar labor his whole life was a stunning specimen of strength and no one wanted to mess with him. So he walked right on through. In any event, Mr. Rogers would not do this. He would not he would not get in trouble on his first day on the job, right? Hey, welcome, you know, we're giving you a place at the table. Come sit here. Yeah, okay, thank you very much. You're all screwed. This is an amazing, amazing bit of bravery. So Jesus just slips away, but soon he's getting into more trouble. His own family, including his brother James, was deeply skeptical about Jesus in the middle of his ministry and thought that he might have lost it. You know James, the pillar of the church in Jerusalem in Acts, a devout believer and follower of his brother as the means of grace and the, and the promised Messiah. That's, that's the James we're talking about, but in the middle of the Gospels before the resurrection, he did not believe. He was skeptical. He came, yes, with his beautiful, meek Mother Mary to collect him because they thought he had lost it. He healed on the Sabbath day, directly confronting the legalism of the, of the Pharisees. In fact, sometimes he did it specifically to provoke them. He came to the Sabbath. He teaches a little bit. Guy shows up with an illness, looks at the Pharisees, looks at the guy, looks at the Pharisees. Yeah, I'm going to do this right now. He heals them, like, almost like he's healing them, not even looking at the guy, like just looking at the Pharisees. You going to stop me? What, is this bad? Do you think this is bad? Is this bad? that I would heal a man on the Sabbath. You tell me, is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath? You know, and he would just provoke them. And then when some uh, warned him that, that the political leader of the time, Herod Antipas, that's not the Herod who wanted to have him killed when he was a baby, it's a different Herod. Herod Antipas was actually wanting to have him killed. Here's what he said, Luke chapter 13, verse 32. You go tell that fox, look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will complete my work. Yet I must travel today, tomorrow, and the next day because it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. So by calling Herod a fox, I'm pretty sure he wasn't complimenting him on his sex appeal. He's, um, he's calling him a lying, duplicitous, corrupt leader. Now you think about that, criticizing the dictator, right? These are not people who are, you know, beholden to the rule of law, okay? They could call the SS and have him killed. And he just speaks truth to power and then did you catch the sarcasm in this too the sarcasm is you know i'm not even worried about this cat and i'll tell you why because isn't there a rule that you can't kill a prophet except in the city of god that's the only place you kill prophets so i guess until i get there i'm just going to keep doing what i'm doing today tomorrow and the next day somebody stop me this is an, this is amazing this is not a wimp. This is not a thing that Mr. Rogers would say. Now, after about a year and a half, Jesus, because he was what we said last week, he was not a jerk. He was a welcoming, salve and balm and healing for the outcast and the sick and the lowly. And so he collected an amazing following, a throng, hundreds of people. They would follow him from village to village around the Sea of Galilee, which was his main stomping grounds. And so this is an amazing thing because Jesus risks alienating them. One day, this young man, who's got hundreds of people just tagging along beside him, turns to the crowd and says, Luke chapter 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So it's like, come on, Jesus. You're saying this to your friends, man. These are your homies. These are people who are supporting you. They would vote for you. Come on, Jesus. Mr. Rogers wouldn't risk alienating all the neighbors in his neighborhood. But Jesus does. Now, why would he do this? I'll tell you why. Because then as now, a lot of people are drawn to Jesus simply for the promise of some kickback or some little bit of power or some little, you know, enhancement of their bottom line. Now, friends, that happens today. There are a lot of people who want to associate themselves with Jesus. Lots of people. People who don't really buy into Christian orthodoxy. But people have a belief that Jesus is somehow magical. Like, this is a little incantation. He's like a... He's like a you know, like a gypsy doll or something like you just say his name or whatever and, and like magical blessings will be sprinkled all over you. I looked this week and Facebook has, Jesus Christ has a Facebook page. Did you know that? Yeah, he does. And I'm sure that this is either put out by idiots or skeptics. One of the two. One of the two. Because every other post of Jesus Christ's page on Facebook page is a meme that says, click here and in an hour you'll get a miracle. Click here, do this and you'll get a miracle. And friends, then as now, it's like, if you can just be around them, you know, you can just, you can maybe collect some of the rays that are coming off the sun. And friends, Jesus didn't want people following him for that reason. He had no interest in it. Did they want God? Did they want a relationship with their maker? Did they want the gift? Or did they want the giver? It looked to him like they just wanted the gifts. So he turned to the crowd at another time, and this is right after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and imagine how that created buzz amongst a bunch of destitute peasants. And he fed them for free, thousands and thousands of them. And now they're following him all over the place. And so he turns to them at another time in John chapter 6, verse 26, and he says, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you. Not because you understand the miraculous sign. You see, the miracle was never an end in and of itself. It was to point to restored relationship with God. So he says, but don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you, for I am the bread of heaven. And so anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live forever. I am the access point to life, true sustenance that gives life to every man and woman and child. Now you just imagine you're the disciples, right? You say, oh, Jesus, not the eat my flesh speech again. Oh, you're alienating the clientele here, man. You're driving away the customer base. And surely that's exactly what happened. For many from that point on, could not stomach a Jesus who made himself the hinge point of reconciliation with God. Couldn't stomach it. And so the footnote on the story is from chapter 6, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. In fact, Jesus risks alienating his closest friends. At one point, he says to his best friend, as far as we know, Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. Because you do not have in mind the things of God, but only the things of men. That's, that's Jesus. I mean, just stunningly brave and truthful and provocative. Mr. Rogers wouldn't risk alienating his own audience, but Jesus did. Now, as he approached the three-year mark of his ministry, Jesus marching inexorably south. 
And the geographic march from the northern part of Israel down to the southern part where, where Jerusalem is, you can kind of see it as a sort of a marching toward the culmination of his mission and purpose. And I'd like you to imagine you're marching with him. Throughout this series, we've kind of actually, I don't know if you noticed it, but we're marching with Jesus chronologically uh, through his ministry, and now we're getting towards the end. And if you can imagine yourself marching towards Easter and those monumental events of Good Friday, let's imagine that we're marching with him towards Jerusalem. And when we get there, if we're watching what he does, it kind of is the culmination of him not being a wimp because there he does nothing but stir up trouble. He's a button pusher. He keeps on getting in people's faces. He casts over, he knocks over the money changer tables as we saw in our drama here this morning. He challenges every false idea, every false tradition and all the people who stand for God but who are standing in the way of God. And that infuriates him. Yeah, like it makes him mad. You don't believe me. So let's go. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You lock up the kingdom of heaven from people, for you don't go in, and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. Blind guides, you strain at a gnat and yet gulp down a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men bones and every impurity. Snakes, brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? just not a wimp that's jesus just stunningly calling it as it is that wasn't very friendly does it surprise you that when five days of saying that he was dead does that surprise you that doesn't surprise me they killed him ac3 as a heretic as a blasphemer as a false prophet as a seducer of the people but mostly because he made himself the sole object of faith. He walked around and he didn't say, you know what you need to do is you need to believe more in Moses. No, he walked around and said, believe in me. Believe in me. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. I'm the hinge point of history. I am the access point for the grace of God. I, me, me, myself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that could not be stomached. It could not. But he just wouldn't settle for anything less. Why wasn't he content just to kind of live where we were living last week? Remember, Jesus was not a jerk. Why didn't, we just, why didn't he just live there, you know, where he's proclaiming God's love for everyone and he's saying nice things and never making anyone feeling any discomfort at all. It was because of who he was. If he was the incarnate son, and it's true that when he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, then he could do no less than to demonstrate the power and, and might and uh, demand of the Holy One Himself. The one who accepts no challengers to the throne of human affections and devotion. The one who demands complete allegiance and commitment from those that He's made. How could He not? 
if he was the one who is goodness himself, the one who holds the moral law in his own hands, the one who is primarily offended in all sin, the one who therefore has the right to be the forgiver of sin and has that, that authority on earth. The one who is so zealous, so jealous for those that he loves that he is wrathful against anything that destroys the thing that he loves the most and that happens to be you. So he can demonstrate all these things, friend, because of who he was. So let me ask you this. Have you accepted this unsafe Jesus in all of his dangerousness? Or is it some other Jesus that you follow? I hope you can see the uh, paradox here. Because Jesus was profoundly safe. He was a haven of love, acceptance, and forgiveness that a throng of losers and sinners and backsliders and morally bankrupt people had ever seen. He was the only access point to God that they had ever known like the Pharisees said like Jesus said they had shut them out so he was unbelievably safe for them he was he was the, it was the place of warm embrace that they had never had before and yet Jesus was profoundly unsafe because he asked for an all or nothing jump into his arms he takes you to the edge of the cliff and he says trust me jump into my arms and you know what? It was those losers and sinners and backsliders and morally bankrupt. Those are the ones who dared to jump. Why? Because they're the ones who had nothing to lose. They had nothing to lose. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are those who are meek. He says, blessed are you because you've got nothing to lose. You're the ones who are going to take the leap of faith into the arms of God through his chosen one, the Messiah. You're the ones. The one who says, blessed are you. The one who says, I am poor in spirit. You're the one. You've got nothing to lose. Blessed are you. But woe to you, rich now. Woe to you, well-fed now. Woe to you, totally secure now. Woe to you, money, sex, and power. And you've got it all now. Woe to you, because you've got too much to lose. And you won't follow. So do you understand? Jesus is this beautiful dichotomy. Totally safe. Totally unsafe. And so I ask you again, do you know the real unsafe Jesus who dares to demand complete surrender to himself? Or do you know a sort of wimpy, tame version of Jesus, completely declawed, who asks for no commitment, just strokes your cheek and says, I'll just go to the back seat over here and, and speak approval over all your choices and I will not, I will not interrupt your mojo. Friend, you have got to get Jesus right. Not a killjoy, not a jerk, and not a wimp. Because if you don't, it will profoundly affect how you walk if you walk following him. And I want to illustrate this. Um, and it's an illustration I picked up from Ray Comfort a million years ago. But just I want you to imagine a parable now. Imagine two men, and they're seated on a plane. And they are both given a parachute to wear. One of them is told that the parachute is for the purpose of improving his flight. So he puts on the parachute and he finds that it's uncomfortable. At times it's like downright painful to wear. And he consoles himself by remembering that the purpose of the parachute is to improve in flight to make himself feel better. And so he keeps it on and waits. Well, suddenly he notices that the other passengers are laughing at him because he's wearing a parachute on a plane. I mean, he looks ridiculous. So finally, he can't stand it any longer. He throws off the parachute in disgust and disappointment. As far as he's concerned, he was lied to. The parachute did not improve his flight. It's constricting, and it made him the object of ridicule. But there's a second man who's given the same parachute 
But he's told that at any moment the plane is going to malfunction and he's going to have to jump 25,000 feet. But good news, a parachute has been provided free of charge. In fact, the captain who's distributing it himself concerned as he was for your safety. So he puts it on and this man doesn't notice the weight of the thing on his shoulders. He's not really concerned about the fact that he can't sit upright. He's not even concerned about the snickers from all of his fellow passengers. His mind is consumed with what might have happened to him without the parachute and filled with gratitude for the captain. Whatever the captain says, I'm going to do. I'm in. I'm all in with that guy. Now let me explain the parable. That first man is like the millions of people who today hear some diluted version of Christianity in water and they decide to follow a very wimpy Jesus. A Jesus who says, look, just believe a few doctrines and you'll have happiness, neighbor. And that's the end game. And I'll improve your flight. And I promise I won't cramp your style. And so what do these millions do? Well, they've tried booze and sex, materialism, ambition, all that stuff to be happy. Well, give Jesus a shot. None of that other stuff worked. Let's see if Jesus will work. But then what do they experience when they put on Jesus? Well, they experience the thing that the real Jesus said would happen when you put him on. They experience some trouble, some temptation, some mockery, some trials, persecution, tribulation. But of course, the wimpy Jesus didn't say that. That was not in the fine print when they put on the parachute. So following that guy, they feel disappointed and they say, well, Christianity doesn't work. And they throw it to the side and they walk away. And people are walking away from the faith today. You just need to kind of check out the stats on that one. Why? I think at least in part is because they have not understood the beautiful outlaw. But the second man on the plane, the second man is like the people who hear the challenge of the beautiful outlaw. And this Jesus courageously spells out their predicament. He didn't, he didn't hold back. He said, there's going to be a day of reckoning. You can just bank on it. More than any other prophet, more than any other writer of scripture, Jesus came back to it over and over again. There's going to be a day after death when the just consequences of moral rebellion against the holy God are going to roll. Jesus said that and mentioned it over and over. And that's the jump to come. But Jesus promised an escape, a rescue, a way to be found innocent on judgment day. How? Me, he said. I'm the bread of life. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, take me in, throw your lot in with me, trust me. Take me on as rescuer and leader. That's how. But this Jesus, who is not a jerk, who welcomes anyone, no matter what they've done or where they've been, is also not a wimp. And so he says, I give peace with God, but the way will not be easy. The road is narrow. Your friends may be few. The world will hate you on account of me. Trusting me means extravagant faith, no matter what the cost. What do you say? What do you say? And here's the defining moment when that second guy on the flight says, let me see. God loves me, accepts me, he'll forgive me. He gives me right standing with God. He saves me from the just consequences of my actions and calls me home to an eternal reward. You know, I'm going to put up with some mockery and some trials and some temptation and some trouble and I'm going to do whatever Jesus says. I'm all in because he was all in for me. Do you see the difference? I mean, it just makes a massive difference in, in what Jesus you follow. Is it the real Jesus or not? The difference is a difference in hope, a difference in joy and gratitude, and a difference in perseverance no matter what life may dish out. And I submit to you, we have a dearth 
a lack of persevering saints today. Now you just imagine, uh, go back to me, with me onto that flight. You just imagine the stewardess spills a pot of boiling hot uh, coffee over the lap of the second passenger. You know, the follow the real Jesus, the beautiful outlaw. What's his reaction? Does he whip off the parachute and say, this stupid thing, it didn't work. No, why would he? He wasn't told it would protect him from coffee spills. He put it on because of the imminent jump to come. If anything, the hot coffee makes him cling tighter to the parachute and look forward to the jump. People come to the real Jesus and they hear his stirring challenge to total devotion. So that changes things. When their family members ostracize them for their commitment to Christ, when they experience ridicule at work, when they experience suffering in a world that Jesus says was the domain of the evil one, when they experience natural evil in this, in this life, they don't throw the whole thing away and say, this didn't work. They say, hey, I'm prepared for this because I didn't respond to wimpy Jesus. I responded to the bold, daring Jesus who said, Luke chapter 12, verse 51, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Sometimes allegiance to me will come in between you and your closest family members. The people who follow the real Jesus aren't dismayed or disrupted by the fact that he calls for something stunning when he calls for faith-based obedience to him because they followed the Jesus who said, Luke chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord? Lord, but do not do the things that I say. They just understand there's a disconnect there. If you take on Jesus as a rescuer and leader, but you don't do the things that he says, then does that make any sense? In what way am I a disciple? We'll talk a little bit more in extended about the difference between being a believer merely and being a disciple. Listen, understand something. Jesus laid out this parable in Matthew chapter 13 about the sower of the seeds, right? And so if you receive the real Jesus, the daring, bold Jesus, this beautiful outlaw we've been talking about, you will become the good soil he talks about because only those who receive this real, stunning, brave Jesus on as leader are only those who will become the soft soil that receives the seed of Jesus' good news. They will become the tilled soil which roots, uh, whose roots go down past shallow theology of self-help and uncritical thinking. And they'll become the clean soil without the competing weeds of worry or pleasures that choke God out. Instead, they'll become soil that produces a harvest of righteousness. OAC3, you understand? There's a lot riding on the Jesus you follow. So, do you follow the real Jesus? Or are you following something else? Let's pray. God, now I pray for my friends, myself as well, that we would see you as you really are. And in understanding the stakes that are involved here, that your burden is easy, your yoke is light, that you come to bring life and life abundant, that you will give peace and not as the world gives, and we would understand that this is worth selling everything we have to purchase the field where the treasure of the kingdom lies. Lord, may we be among those who hear the stirring call of the real Jesus and so be willing to deny ourselves and leave our life that we may find it in the end in following Jesus. Lord, there's somebody here, I know there's somebody here who still sits at the reins of their life. They have sewn you on as some sort of adornment to their life, but you do not lead. You are not master. And so they do not do the things that you say. And I just pray, Lord, this will be the moment a moment of stirring conviction that they would repent 
and realize that when they take on Jesus' rescuer, they take on Jesus' master. And Lord, may we then be willing to be a church set apart, rebellious against a sinful culture and be like Jesus in that way, a rebel and an outlaw. And so shine with the righteousness of God and the grace that you hold out for a lost and dying world. I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, AC3, I'm so glad you're here. I really am. And, and let us together take in the challenge of Jesus and be different next week because we heard the gospel with fresh ears this morning. You know, we're going to keep.